Okay, so uh, that's the introduction. And with that, I'm going to introduce our first speaker, who is uh, Professor Michael Sag from the uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham. And if I can find his presentation. Thank you, Charlie. All right. All right. This works. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Okay. Well, welcome. Um, there's a, obviously a, a wide range of experience, which is good. We're going to take advantage of that. Um, but this opening lecture is mostly for those folks who have kind of dabbled with, haven't really engaged completely yet in hepatitis C. So this is kind of the foundation that we're going to build from. And as we go through this, you're going to see things get a little bit more complex and, uh, and very nuanced. And hopefully as we go through these discussions, some of those nuances will become a little bit clearer about how you choose between individual regimens. But I'll just preface and say sometimes it's what you're the patient's insurance company will allow through the PBM, right? I won't call them evil. I'll just say that they're involved. And uh, so the PBMs oftentimes dictate what we do. And that's okay. We should probably have that discussion as the day goes on. We should take full advantage of the expertise in the room. That's the beauty of a workshop, right? So let's just have a little fun with this. And uh, um, Mark and Philip, welcome. Um, I love the name tags. So we, were, we just went around and introduced ourselves. Um, could you just give us a, a word about where you're, where you're located and how much hepatitis C you've been engaged in and what you hope to get out of the lecture series? Um, I work for the city of uh, Chicago Health Department in the STD HIV program. Great. And we talked about doing hepatitis C, uh, at least diagnosis. Yeah. Okay. Do you think it's possible the health department here could treat for 12 weeks? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, talk to Rom. Okay. And Philip. Hi. Good morning. Um, yeah, I work in the South Side. I'm an infectious disease physician. Um, you know, we started, uh, well, we're overwhelmed there because there's a lot of cases that are not treated and a lot of co-infections too. So we're, they're kind of, there's not a lot of physicians that can treat hepatitis either. So I'd like to get some more. Great. Welcome. Um, and just to summarize who else is in the room, um, there's a number of folks from pharmacies, from Walgreens and CVS and PBM associated therewith. There are a lot of other ID providers and some other providers uh, ranging from Peoria to Chicago to the Bronx via Wrigley Field. So we've got the whole kind of gamut of folks, and it's great. All right, so here we go. So these are my... Uh, uh, Involvement. I've, I've do our group does research studies for uh, these companies listed there, and I have been a scientific advisor to BMS Merck and Gilead, and as well as Teva Pharmaceuticals, which is a generic company. So, what we're going to talk about very quickly, and this will be like kind of a fasten your seatbelt, let's rock, because a lot of you kind of already know this, so I want to try to create a balance here, but. We're going to talk about the genotypes. We're going to talk about how to recognize and stage 
HCV and why that's important in terms of picking treatments, although maybe over time that becomes less important as we'll talk about through the day, and describe emerging treatments in the changing landscape, which changes about every 44 seconds. So let's just start with a couple questions. Um, the first one is, what test most accurately stages liver fibrosis? These are your choices. Go ahead and vote. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. So how Norman really changed the whole landscape of what was allowable on television, from toilets flushing, which you never heard before, to other things, right? Okay, yeah. So liver biopsy is the most accurate. It's certainly not the most convenient. And transient elastography, as we'll talk about, um, is a pretty good surrogate. Um, but the liver biopsy, as far as if you were being tested, uh, probably is the most accurate test but it's got complications and, and I think other things are starting to replace it. So this is a little bit of a trick question. I'll explain why after you answer, but um, what percent of persons with chronic HCV will develop cirrhosis over 30 years? Understand chronic, not those who had it and cleared it. So among the people that still have chronic, go ahead and vote. <laughs> Okay. All right. All right. So I think the proper answer is actually 21 to 50%. The reason why it's a little bit strange is that um, the, the, the data that come from all kinds of outcome studies show that, um, that it's at least 20%. Right, and probably more like 20 to 30, but then if that's over 20 years, and if you follow it out to 30 years, it starts to approach 50% with more advanced fibrosis. Um, but that's kind of where things are. Um, and, and I think, obviously, as you know, alcohol and other things can accelerate uh, that. So it's, but the problem is for all of us is that you can't look at a patient today who's got, say, stage. Uh, F2 disease and say for sure they're going to be cirrhotic, have a cirrhotic liver in five years or ten years. You can't pick the people who are going to progress, at least not easily. So which is the most common genotype in the United States? Pretty straightforward. Go ahead and vote. Pretty much everybody who started in that show is now gone. You know, Andy's Ron, Ron Howard, still around, still producing movies. That was a test, uh, yeah. But Andy died. All right, yeah, everybody knows this. Great, I can skip through those slides pretty quick. All right, so this is what we're going to go through in about 25 or 30 minutes or maybe less. So let's just dig in. So the history is really fascinating for hepatitis C. Um, those of us who have less hair or gray hair, um, we recognize this as non-A, non-B hepatitis when we were in training. And then in the late 80s, it was defined as hepatitis C. Great. Okay, there it is. But what do you do about it? And the treatments actually started to emerge into the early 90s. Uh, if, for those who were working in HIV, which is several of you, you might remember that ribavirin was a drug that was trying to find a niche in HIV. And there was a company out of Arizona that was trying to promote it, and, and all it did was cause anemia and, and sores, trouble, but it never really did much. Um, but lo and behold, for hepatitis C, when you combine it with interferon, it actually worked. And 
Uh, then the studies with pegylated interferon ribavirin were getting success rates, uh, depending on the genotype, could be kind of high if it were genotype 2, but pretty miserable if it was genotype 1, and especially in a co-infected patient. Um, and so then by the late 90s, this replicon assay system was developed. And you take this kind of perfect storm. It was really kind of great science because you have a new assay that can start looking at smaller molecules for activity. And then you take all the know-how that, that pharmaceutical companies had developed in developing treatments for HIV, and they started to apply it. And so you'll see really familiar stuff like ritonavir boosting and other things just kind of popping out and this explosion of drugs going into 2003, 2004, as far as lead compounds, going into the phase two, three, four studies uh, coming into 2008, and now just a, a bevy of new drugs, get one getting better than the other. And where we're headed with all this, I think, is a one pill once a day um, approach for pangenotypes. So it may be over time and it's starting to become over time uh, where genotypes won't matter, but now they still do for the most part. 170 million estimated, maybe it's 180 million. Uh, you compare that to HIV, that's 36 million. In the United States, three to four million people infected with hepatitis C in the U.S., maybe about one million. And you look at the appropriate attention that's gone to HIV, but you look at the inappropriate attention that's gone to HCV. It, it's, out of, it's out of sync. And something I kind of rail against um, is just ask yourself this question. If tomorrow the hundreds of millions of dollars that NIH is pouring into cure research for HIV suddenly resulted in a true cure and something that was affordable, relatively speaking, and something that could eradicate HIV from a patient in 12 weeks of treatment, what do you think the world would do? How do you think the world would respond to that news, Right? Yet we have something similar. We can question the affordability, actually, because more people infected. Um, but that's what we have in hepatitis C. And yet you don't hear the, we can talk maybe at the end about why that might be. So that's what's fun about a workshop. The genotypes, you got this just right. Uh, in the United States, it's mostly genotype 1. And it's, it's uh, kind of 1A and 1B. Um, 1A is more difficult to treat. I love Marion Peters' way to remember that is that 1A is awful and 1B is better. Do you ever want to kind of keep that straight? Um, and uh, around the world, it's different. Egypt has got almost up to 15% of their population infected with hepatitis C, and it's predominantly genotype 4. Um, and so a lot of variability. And on this particular graphic, the size of the, of the pie chart is the relative number of people infected. So you can see in Asia, there's an awful lot of people. So this is very familiar to those of you who do HIV. To those of you who haven't done much HIV, uh, this may be new, but it's called the cascade. Um, and you have people who are infected. Those who've been tested, I think this is probably generous. I, I suspect it's not that high, but it, it, we maybe don't know who hasn't been tested, who's still out there. Um, get, getting linked to care is very difficult sometimes because a testing center might be a health department. I think it's great that the health department would do that, but then finding a provider uh, who will see them and, and assess them, et cetera, it can be difficult. And then making sure the patient actually arrives for their visit is another story, right? Then getting the RNA to determine whether they've got uh, just acute infection that they cleared or that whether they have chronic HCV 
and then getting them treated and getting them to SVR is, is pretty dismal right now. So we have a lot of work to do, which is why we like doing these workshops and kind of getting people excited about treating. Natural history, we talked about this already. Um, acute, 85% become chronically infected. A large majority remain stable. Um, about 20%, now this is a 20-year progression, so 30 years probably more, and this I think is kind of conservative. But the problem is that once somebody gets cirrhosis, it's there. Um, there's a chance for liver healing if, it's, if you treat people earlier, even if they have a little bit of fibrosis. Uh, and there is some, uh, we'll let Dr. Charlton comment about um, his work and, and how much he sees once they treat people with decompensated cirrhosis, how they re turn towards more normal physiology. Um, but once, you don't want somebody to get to cirrhosis. And once they get there, the risk of um, not just end-stage liver disease, but hepatocellular carcinoma. And I think everyone in the room probably knows that, that the risk of, uh, in, in the case of hep C, you don't really see hepatocellular carcinoma occurring in people who don't have significant fibrosis. And it's when people have cirrhosis that you really need to continue to screen them even after they've been cured. And that's, some, that's a huge message for folks. Um, but I think most of you on that pretest exam, which we did look at, by the way, uh, sort of knew that already. Come on in. Um, so that's kind of why, what we're trying to prevent here. And again, I think the mystery or the problem is we can't predict these people well. If we had a test that said, mm, you're for sure headed there, well, then we can maybe start using resources in a way that focused on them for sure first, but we don't have that ability. Um, this doesn't show up very well, but I think the take-home point is that this is how it's all going to project out. I think what I'd like you to focus on, you can't see it, but I'll tell you, this is 2016. This is where we are now. So over the next 20 or 30 years is when we can expect a bolus of people starting to get sicker with advanced disease and cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma if we do nothing. And I don't think anybody really wants to do nothing. So we, we really want to push for this and prevent a lot of this disease and this burden of disease. So that's kind of where, we, where we're headed and where we want to be. Um, there are barriers, though, to this, uh, not the least of which is have, making sure there's enough people who can treat. And my personal bias or feeling, it's more than a bias, my personal feeling is that now, this is a disease that primary care providers can treat successfully. First off, there's not enough hepatologists for sure. There's not enough ID and GI docs for sure who have the extra time to carve that out of a busy day. A lot of us do it, but we maybe do it half day, two half days a week, and that's not sufficient. And so primary care really makes a lot of sense. If you go to fairly qualified health centers and recruit primary care docs and provide backup support to them, especially with hepatology. Uh, people can be trained, and the hardest thing is really two things. One is really getting comfortable with the um, fibrosis scoring when you don't have fiber scan and you're not going to get a biopsy, but I think we'll talk about that a little bit, but those are pretty good, at least to get you in the ballpark. And the second thing, of course, is the social service support. Uh, once you see heads nodding, once you decide you're going to treat, you write the prescription, well, that might not be the right medicines uh, for what the PBM has made the deal with the company over or whatever the situation is. And so having someone help negotiate that in the form of centralized case management, I think, is really helpful for FQHC providers. But these are details we can get into. So staging, we've already alluded to. I think, um, you know, there are a number of options here. 
to me, the transannual elastography is what we use, but the machines are kind of expensive. You can charge for them now. There's a CPT code, but uh, they're very they're so they're so easy to use. And um, uh, Mike Charlton and I were just talking that there may be emerging a handheld that's portable that you can just kind of put in your pocket and go on rounds with and keep making sure after you've visited the bar the night before that your liver's okay. It's kind of cool. And uh, and uh, but, but the transit, how many people have this available? Good. Yay. Great. Not bad. So you're well ahead of the game. And that makes it good. But the other markers like the APRI score, which is a platelet um, in the AST ratio, um, is a pretty good one. Fib4 is pretty good. Um, if the score gets above 3.15 or something, or, uh, then you know that the person likely has cirrhosis. Um, these types of things, Fibrosure, they're, they're really good on the extremes for sure. So if the number like for Fibrosure is very low, you can feel pretty confident they don't have cirrhosis. If the number is really high, about 0.85 or 0.75, yeah, they probably got some advanced scarring. But those middle ground it's really hard to know because sometimes they actually have cirrhosis if they're at 0.55 or 0.6. Sometimes they do, a lot of times they don't. So it becomes a little bit more of a judgment. But I think that uh, when you're unsure, no pun intended, on your fiber sure, then you can uh, send somewhere else or get a liver biopsy and try to sort it out. This is the fiber scan, uh, the transient elastography. I think. Um, Dr. Charlton will talk to us more about this, I think, in his talk, so I'll skip over. This is where the cutoffs are. We'll hear more about that. But 12 and a half is kind of the magic number for kilopascals, which is the metric of relative liver stiffness that translates uh, to cirrhosis. So what about the drugs? Um, again, you know, if you've had any experience with HIV, this becomes relatively easy because there are processes that are very, very similar. The biggest difference, of course, is that there is no integrated DNA. So we can cure this relatively easily, relatively easily compared to HIV, where the integrated DNA of the transcribed virus um, is, the, is the sort of huge barrier that we're trying to identify and get rid of. So since all this takes place out here, all these steps are involved in their targets. So you, and I'll get into this on another slide, but you have these NS34A, which happens to also be called protease inhibitors. It's like some cruel joke or funny joke. You know, you're creating HIV drugs and then you use the technology to create HCV drugs and they're, all, they're called sort of exactly the same. There's protease inhibitors and nucleosides and nucleotides and, and non-nucleosides. What? And then they throw out this NS5A thing, so that's a little different. But those are the way; those are the drugs you have. And this is the genome, just like HIV. It's about nine and a half kilobat bases long, an RNA virus. I mean, the similarities are crazy. HIV replicates at one to ten billion copies a day. Hepatitis C about a hundred billion to a trillion copies a day. And that rapid replication. Keep that in mind as we talk about resistance. Keep that in mind as we talk about clearance. But what it does tell you is that when you stop the replication. And a half-life of a virus is probably hours. That's why you see this rapid decline. You can go from millions of copies to undetectable really as soon as 10 to 14 days. It's not always that way, right? But it could be that quick. It's just striking, remarkable. Shows you how when, you under, when, when we understand science and apply therapeutics 
in a logical way, good things happen. So here we go, protease inhibitors. The NS5A uh, inhibitors have to do with assembly, and uh, everyone always waves their hands like I'm doing when they try to describe exactly what it does. But it has something to do, it's a critical step, let's put it that way, in terms of the virion coming back together and becoming infectious. And then the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, remember that uh, HIV has reverse transcription, which is an RNA-dependent DNA polymerase. This is RNA-RNA. And so you've got nukes and non-nukes. Um, this is one slide that got by me that I didn't update. So obviously these are all the medicines that are on the market. Um, and, huh, it's actually missing. No, there it is. Decladosphere is here, but I'm missing Velpatosphere. But we'll talk a lot about that. But that, as I'll show you later, this is kind of a neat trick. Tell me, tell me if you haven't heard this, but you can know what they are by their suffix, right? A previr is a protease inhibitor. An asvir, I love that. If you're an asvir, you're an NS5A. And a buvir is a uh, NS5B. So it'll, it helps you keep it straight. All the pharmacists kind of lock in on that. So the kinetics, I've already kind of told you, they're rapid, they're incredible. I mean, just mind-blowing how fast this is. And what I think we tend to, this is what I usually said to the HIV audience back in the mid-90s when we discovered the rapid turnover of HIV. You know, um, we tend to sort of cartoonize um, science. You know, we draw pictures and diagrams and then we kind of understand it. But we kind of forget the speedy dynamics. So, for example, when I raise my arm like this inside my deltoid muscle, how many actinomycin uh, interactions just happened? I mean, I don't know the number, but it's a lot, and it happens fast, right? Faster than we can imagine. Well, the same thing's true with viral replication. These things happen fast, faster than we can imagine. And so we tend to think about it as more of a static thing, but this is really, really rapid. And those kinetics lead to rapid response. The only reason why I show this slide is because of historical basis. When we treated with PEG riba in the old days, this is how responses were characterized. I don't want you to really focus on too much except that it was painful for 48 weeks for patients and providers. And even when you got out there, sometimes people relapsed. So the term relapse was important, but they tended to respond okay if you tried to treat them again, especially when you added a protease inhibitor. The null responders are the ones I'd like to really bookmark because in the day when you still, we still use PEG-RIBA with a protease inhibitor or even cefospivir, they still were difficult to treat. But in the DAA landscape, it doesn't matter anymore. That's kind of the take-home point, that the DAAs work pretty much as well against prior interferon non-responders as they do against the, the uh, rest of the group. So what are the current treatments? It's pretty wild and crazy out there. Um, these are uh, the old data, and I show it just to kind of say that uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there, there were factors that were associated with poor response like black race and older age and IL-28B non-CC, and those are things that we'll have the slides available for you. You can, you can dial in if you'd like, but the point is, is that in the interferon treating days, 
um, those were the things that were tougher. And then the combination of ribavirin and sofosbuvir first came along. Um, they were also, they were not quite as effective against some of these traditionally difficult to treat folks. Um, more of the same, but notice how um, as you had more negative predictive factors for these particular regimens, as you had black race, IL-28B, non-CC, etc., the more you accumulated, the worse the response was. That's historic. Now, right, we've got this incredible menu and landscape of drugs, and they, they all work pretty well. Some are more pangenotypic, like vopatosphere, and Declatosphere is pretty pangenotypic. Some of them are mostly for one and one A and B, um, or four, one A, B, four. We're going to talk about that in more detail. And then there's drugs on the market coming, uh, not market, in development that are coming along that are more and more pangenotypic. So I bet if we had this workshop three years from now, we may not be discussing the notion of, pan, uh, of specific genotype and therapy. As a rule, most of the drugs were developed in the U.S., and therefore they were primarily targeting U.S. market things, so 1A and 1B were the, were the first ones out of the block. Like semeprevir, pretty much only one. Okay, genotype one. So what happened is one became relatively treatable, but things like genotype three became a bugaboo, right? And now we're having a little bit better success than just with ribavirin and sofosbuvir when we start throwing vopatosphere in the mix, for example. So these types of, uh, this is just going to continue. Um, the take-home point for me, and this is going to be for me a recurring theme through the day, is that, especially for genotype 1, most of the regimens work. Whether or not you have to add ribavirin depends on whether it's 1A or 1B. And really what it boils down to in a lot of situations is what will the company that's providing the payment for the drugs pay for. And that's stuff that's often opaque to the patients for sure. A lot of times to us until we write the prescription and say, no, 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 you can't use this one. You've got to use our preferred one. And the reason it's preferred is because the deal the PBM made with the payer and the pharmaceutical company to say, okay, for this particular situation, we're going to get a rebate, notice not discount, rebate, because they make money based on list price and not on the, yep, right? So it's a rebate, and it can be up to whatever percent, but I can't tell you because I don't know for sure, because it's not in the public domain, but it's around 50%, roughly. Ah, this is just to overwhelm us with options which is, I think, why we're here. This gets into the nuances of the old days and the newer days and the incredible number of possible things. And so the color coding here is the green is for the protease inhibitors and the, the purple is for the uh, NS5Bs and the powder blue is for the um, NS5As. But again, you don't need the color coding because you know to look for Buvir or Asvir or Previr. So, all right, great. If, we, if I'm going to quote um, Austin Powers, what does it all mean, Basil? Okay, so this is what it all means. Once you get to SVR, does that help people? I mean, sure, the numbers look good. You know, they're cured. Whoopee. But does it mean something? Yeah, it means a lot. So, 
you, you go to, um, if you have an SVR 12, which means sustained virologic response after end of therapy, treat for, let's say, 12 weeks, bring them back in 12 weeks later, that's at week 24 since initiation, if they're still target not detected, for all intents and purposes, they're cured. And if you follow it out for 48 weeks or 72 weeks, as a rule, it'll stay that way. There are rare cases, rare, 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 where it might come back. So I, at least for my practice, I just say, you're cured. And try not to get re-exposed. Because at least in the HIV world, and especially among uh, younger gay men um, who remain sexually active, not dissing that, but sexually active without condoms or protection, other STIs are recurrent, right, as you guys see, I'm sure. You have STIs here in Chicago? A few? Yeah. We have some syphilis where I'm from, just a little bit, like number one in the country, I think we are. We're number one. Um, that, that hepatitis C is also an STI, and so people can get reinfected. It's not that frequent, but it happens, and the reason you know it is because they were cured of 1A, and they come back with genotype 3. That doesn't happen inside somebody's body. It, it has to be a second infection. And then these are data that there's just more and more and more of them. I, I, you could pick any study you want. This is uh, the one out of JAMA uh, from 2012, but this is looking at cures. So if somebody did not have hepatitis C treatment, um, that would be this solid line. Uh, there, and that, that's, this is overall mortality. And then if they were a non-responder, that was actually even worse. But look at this. If they have SVR, they do really well in terms of overall survival. And even the relapsers had some benefit, but this is mostly from interferon days. There aren't many relapsers in the DAA era, but what, the way that would look is that at week 12, end of therapy, a target not detected. Week 24, it's back. That only happens, depending on the regimen, 1 to maybe 10% of the time. 10% is an outlier, 1 to 4%. So most often, if you're end of treatment, target not detected, it's going to stay that way. But it can. It can come back. And, we'll t and a lot of times that's associated with some resistance to NS5A, et cetera. So this is uh, more in the area of what Dr. Charlton deals with because he's a hepatologist, and they spend a lot of their time in transplants and liver failure and hepatocellular carcinoma. But look at the difference here. Just without an SVR, this is the overall rate with an SVR. It doesn't go to zero. That's the take-home point. It still can happen, but it's, it's much better. And then uh, for liver failure itself, um, much, I'm talking about child BC. Um, uh, not quite as often. More of the same. All right. I think I'll obviously stop there. Um, any comments or questions or reactions? Yeah, I thought that was it really very concise. Uh, the, um, I, I emphasize like what you just said about that. You have that 1 to 10 percent, you know, probably closer. You know, 1 that, to 4. That, that can fail. That will or relapse. Relapse. Mm -hmm. So even if they 100 percent took every dose. Yep. That's why I think then those factors you pointed out, and that's why I've seen them. It's like the male, black, HIV co-infected, right. 1A. It's right. their most difficult, and that's the ones who 
It is, and, and now you can add to that mix uh, perhaps NS5A resistance at right. baseline. Right, baseline. So they can have a nice response while they're on it, and then they relapse later. Or they can, what I think it is, just to, because I know you do HIV and a lot of people in the room, you think about it existing as a subpopulation, like maybe a minor variant kind of thing, and you, maybe it's 10% of the population of viruses. And this, the swarm also exists, right? The quasi-species, everything you know about HIV applies except you can cure HCV. That's maybe a rule of thumb. You don't need to know anything more, right? So you don't have to spend a lot of time on this. But, but the take-home point is that you, you push down, you pull, the virus, you pull the drug away, and what's left are the resist NS5A naturally occurring resistant viruses that were there pre-therapy, and they, boom, shoot back. And so uh, I don't remember the exact rate of situations where you have resistance, but it's, what, about 80% there's resistance of NS5A at a, at a week in an SVR12 relapse? Does that sound about right? You can detect the resistance-associated variants or substitutions. Yeah, yeah. about 80%. I don't think yeah. it's 100%, but it's close. Yeah. And the other thing to remember about that, this is just jumping ahead to, the, to my next lecture, but it's okay. It's a workshop. Um, it's uncommon to ever see uh, NS5B resistance to a nucleotide. So sofosbuvir so exists, but it's rare. Uh, so the five A's are the vulnerable ones, and we'll talk more about that as we go. Yes. Ah. So everything's inside the well. Most everything's inside the hepatocyte, and the, the replication is just occurring. And I, I imagine it to be similar, although I don't have exact proof of this because I don't know that the that the virology has quite had the time to that HIV has had, but in general, you've got a virus that's replicating on the order of up to 100 billion viruses a day. So mistakes are gonna happen in translation of the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. And so there can be these chance phenomena where a uh, resistance-associated virus can emerge, or RAV can emerge, but they're so small in the population, they just kind of burn themselves out. But if there's more, if they're, if they're replicating at a relatively higher proportion and you can actually detect it on a RAV screening assay. So it's just like with HIV, you've got to have a certain number unless you're going to do deep sequencing. But if you do population uh, resistance testing and you see a RAV, it's significant. So that just means out of that population of viruses, it's not every one of them, at least to start. But if there's enough to detect, then that's a serious thing that we have to consider. And the and, commercial and assays will, if you're looking to screen a patient at baseline, for example, let's say you wanted to use bisoprodeo or albuterol more, more relevantly, it detects about a 1% uh, enrichment level. So it has to be prevalent to about 1% of virions to uh, turn up positive on the commercial uh, resistance assays. But, you know, I, if you did deep sequencing, I'm sure you'd see more, but it seems to be the 1%, maybe 5% that ends up having the clinical meaning. But you're right, it's not, it, it, that's an important point to flip around the other way. Because there is no proviral state integrated, there's not this notion, there's no longer this notion of archived virus like we think about. So that is a, that is a difference with HIV. Yeah. So it's, it's C. I remember Ken Sherman many years ago here was talking about 
It's a matter of the microcirculation and the hepatocyte, and those is the most difficult part where the fibrosis is, if you can get the drug there. Yeah. So I guess that's his idea that length of, whatever, length of therapy. If you keep treating, eventually you get to all those cells, you, then it would be a cure. I, I, don't, I don't know if he was talking about that doing some research on, on that. I don't know if that would anything. Yeah, I think almost all of the, the RAVs or RASs are biologically less fit, uh, particularly for NS5. So when the selection pressure of an NS5A inhibitor with sofosbuvir is there, and sofosbuvir, to get back to resistance, there's actually not one compelling case worldwide of true sofosbuvir resistance. And the reason is that it's, uh, it, it, it's a triphosphate, so it's incorporated into nascent RNA, as opposed to sterically interacting with any of the viral proteins. So it doesn't, if the viral protein uh, has a, a substitution of some variant that causes some conformational change in NS5, for example, or the uh, uh, NS5B, uh, it doesn't affect sofosbuvir's incorporation into nascent RNA as a triphosphate. And that incorporation leads to a stop codon, and it's done. So that, that's how sofosbuvir is so potent and, how, and why the resistance barrier is so high. So even though there's a description, I think it's a, a 283 uh, substitution for it, it, it's not seen, it's not clinically uh, relevant. But the NS5A variants, uh, they do confer resistance, but they're less biologically fit. They're less good as an NS5A protein. And what I'll talk about in the next lecture uh, that I give is, in addition to that, the 5A is just one mutation away, and the 5B requires two mutations for it to become resistant to a, to a, uh, to inhibition. So the um, that's why you you don't have to necessarily use ribavirin with a lot of the 5A inhibitors uh, for 1B virus, as a rule. But this is this is great. This is really a helpful discussion. Other comments, thoughts? Okay, I will turn the, the clicker over to Dr. Mike Charlton, who's currently um, in Salt Lake City, uh, but very soon to be right here in the Windy City. That's true. Um, about that, but uh, hepatologist does a lot of transplant work over the years and uh, obviously expert in all things liver. Can you